Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome. And uh, go and have a seat. Uh, good to see you all here. And Merry Christmas. Um, that was pathetic. Come on. <laughs> Merry Christmas. There you go. All right. I just want to make sure you're with me. Can you believe Christmas is a week away? Um, that is wild. That is wild. I mean, thankfully, at least it's getting cold. Uh, I would prefer to see some snow on the ground this week uh, after Christmas. Uh, I'll pass all the way around on that, uh, which is why I love uh, New Mexico. But this week, it'd be fun to see some, cold, uh, some snow. And uh, Christmas, crazy. This week, next Sunday, uh, Christmas morning. And so no doubt, hopefully, uh, at some level, you've been thinking or uh, moving towards Christmas, uh, some sense of that uh, in your heart and in your mind. <clears throat> but let me begin our time by asking you this question here this morning. When you think of Christmas, what is it that you are hoping for this Christmas? The return, okay, uh, that, that would work, the return of Christ. Yes, I, uh, we could just all go home and, and do that, and that'd be fantastic. Um, hopefully, I would hope that all of us, that that would be our, our hope or desire. The reality is that many of us have hopes this Christmas, um, but it's probably not that. Maybe some of you are really hoping for a particular gift uh, that, that you're really, really excited about. Maybe some of you are uh, hoping for a particularly good time uh, with family. And listen, I'm a realist, so I know that some of you are sitting here right now going, I just hope I survive. Um, or I hope the family coming to visit survives. Uh, or the people that we're going to see survive. No doubt all of us uh, have different things that we're hoping for uh, this Christmas. Uh, and truthfully, this is a time where we should hope. It's not wrong for us to hope at Christmas. That, that, that's not at all the issue. In fact, I think this is a time that, if anything, that we understand this concept of hope and that that should be showing up in our life. It's this time. And so the question for us ultimately isn't what am, uh, or am I hoping? It's what is my hope found in? As I move towards Christmas, as I'm moving towards this, what is it that is giving me hope? What is it uh, that, that, that I'm holding on to? And this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. You go ahead and begin to turn there. I'll meet you there in a moment. But as we think about this idea of what is it that we're hoping in this Christmas, here's what God's Word is going to reveal to us this morning. It's that the hope of Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us. Let me say that again. The hope of Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us. It is the beginning of God completing what he set out to do all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and, and sin entered into the world and, and the curse came upon them and God said, one day, one day, one day, I'm going to send someone to remedy this. I'm going to send somebody to fix this. That, loved ones, is the hope of Christmas it's the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us. And so this morning, Matthew 1, the entirety of the chapter, is going to bear that truth out for us. Now, I'm not going to read all of chapter 1 because if you've begun to look at the text, you understand that most of the first 17 verses is just a list of names. And inasmuch as um, we could work through them, I don't know that that would be the most uh, productive use of spending the next three, four, five minutes. And I'm just going to be honest, there's some names there. I'm not sure if I can pronounce them correctly or not. Okay, uh, So I'm not going to out myself in that. I'm just going to let you think that I can actually say them all. But notice this, first of all, uh, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And then beginning in verse 2, moving all the way through verse 16, Matthew begins to chronicle uh, all these names. The first, were for, the first few we're familiar with, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. It's like, hey, we got those guys. And then some names begin to show up that were like, I don't really know who that guy is. And uh, I don't remember seeing anything about him. And it takes us all the way down at the end of verse 16, uh, where we see the birth of Jesus, who's called the Christ. And then in verse 17, Matthew tells us this, So all the generations for Abraham, or from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, in actuality, um, th- there are some others that, that fit into that. It's not a clean 14, 14, 14. If you look through uh, the Old Testament very, very clearly, uh, that's not the case. But Matthew's making a point here, and we'll get to that here Uh, In a moment, let's finish reading the rest of chapter 1. We'll pray and then begin to walk through this. Verse 18, uh, Matthew tells us this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew, describing this event, tells us this in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then quoting from Isaiah 7, tells us this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why don't you join me in prayer, and let's ask God to open our hearts and our minds uh, to the truth of his word here this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you. God, we thank you uh, for the work uh, that you are doing. God, we thank you uh, that you are a faithful God. Uh, that you were faithful enough um, to send your son to die in our place. God, we remember his coming this time of year. We, this season, we think about the birth, the incarnation of God himself with his people, and we thank you for that. Uh, God, not only for us this morning would we pray. God, I pray for uh, Pastor Nate Bush and for New City Church. God, I thank you for Nate, and I thank you for uh, his desire to see the gospel go throughout the entirety of uh, the metro area. And God, we pray this morning that as New City meets, that you would be honored and glorified in their gathering, and that you would speak powerfully through uh, Pastor Nate. And God, for us as well, we pray that your spirit would come and speak to us, that you would minister to us. God, we pray that your spirit would have the freedom uh, to speak into our lives, whether we find ourselves in a particularly good place or in a particularly difficult place. That your spirit would have the freedom uh, to speak into our lives, to challenge, to convict, to encourage, um, to inform, God, whatever it is that we would be here as men and women saying, God, we we will do uh, what you call us to do. We will respond to what you have for us here this morning. Would that be true of each and every one of us? Lord Jesus, would you make this true? And we pray this in your name. Amen. Title the message this morning is The Hope of Christmas. God's rescue, 
right? The hope of Christmas and God's rescue, God's intent to rescue. And in Matthew 1, we see the rescue of God playing itself out in the story of God and the fullness of, uh, of what God intended from the very beginning. And uh, three things that I want us to see uh, here in Matthew 1 this morning. Uh, the first is this with respect to this genealogy. Uh, here, here's the main idea uh, up front with respect to all these names. It's this. It's God's rescue offers hope throughout all generations. God's rescue offers hope throughout all generations. There's never been a generation that is excluded or beyond or limited to the hope that comes from God's plan of rescue. And it would be easy for us, honestly, it would be very, very easy for us to just start at verse 18 and, and talk about the traditional Christmas story and maybe even spend some time in chapter 2 with a visit of the wise men. But there's a reason that Matthew starts where he starts. And I think there's a reason that we got to talk about this genealogy. And uh, the truth is, oftentimes we come to genealogies, it, it feels more like we're playing a round of what not, na- what not to name your child uh, than it is uh, what, what's actually going on here. Uh, but the truth is, Matthew is making a point. He's, in fact, he's making a few points and he's making some very strong points here. And so he divides this up into three sections. He talks about uh, Abraham and David and Jesus. And he says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so these three sections tie to these three individuals. And then if you were to read through uh, at the end in verse 17, he summarizes it's Abraham to David, David to the time of the deportation, and then uh, to Babylon, and then from Babylon to the time of Christ. He, he breaks it into these three sections. And it's not scientific precision that he's after. It's not our Western mathematics, scientific, uh, chronological, every name in a row uh, thing that, that Matthew's after. He's, at, he's making a literary point. Okay, so what's his point? What's he after? Well, I think there's a few things uh, tied to this idea of hope throughout all generations. Here's the first that we see with respect to all these names. There's hope in God's promise. There's hope in God's promises. You might start looking at the text going, I I don't see the word hope. I don't see the word promises. Like, where are you gathering this? Well, in the midst of all of these names, there's a couple of names that really stand out. No doubt for us, the name that stands out the most is the name Jesus Christ. But if you were a Jewish person living in Matthew's day, uh, honestly, the two names that would stand out the most to you as you begin to read this would be be the names David and Abraham. Because it was these two names that were tied to uh, the two most prominent covenants that God had made with his people. Right? With Abraham, and we saw this in the book of Galatians, with Abraham, uh, you're going to be the father of of a great nation. You're going to be a father of many nations. And of course, we know that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ and the gospel. And then with David, the thing that's so significant about David is from your line... From your heritage, from your family tree, is going to be the one. He's going to be the guy that's going to rescue all of humanity. And so, so both of these names bring out a significant hope and significant promise for uh, the people. And I think one of the things that we got to understand is when we think about, especially that promise and the, the covenant in uh, with respect to David. The, the, these people held. 
tightly to that. They, they had great hope in that. They were anxiously awaiting the coming Messiah and the Savior. And so every name on this list represents not only a person, but an entire generation that longed for and looked forward to and anxiously awaited a Messiah. And then hear me when I say this. And they died before they ever saw the fulfillment of that. You're like, okay, well, I was kind of tracking with you, that upward thing, and that's kind of a bummer, that whole dying before the fulfillment. Where are you going with that? Here's where I'm going with it. The fact that they died before the fulfillment was seen, does it make the promises of God any less true? I mean, think about it. Does it make God's promise any less true just because they didn't live to see it? I came across this quote this week, and Um, In my study, it was some old notes that I have, so I have no idea where this quote uh, came from. Here's what it says. It says, Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. Let me read that again. Let that sink in. Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. Right? Just because the promise doesn't come when you want it to, just because it didn't work out the specific way that you had envisioned, does not make the promises of God any less true. And some of you, you're sitting here this morning, and, and you're looking at your life, and you're not seeing the promise of God being fulfilled in your life. It, it's not playing out the way that you envisioned it. it. It's not happening in the time that you thought it would. And so you begin to doubt the promise. You begin to question the legitimacy of God's promise. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Can I really trust that? Loved one, you got to know this. You can trust and you can hope in the promises of God. You don't get to demand when they show up. You, you, you have no say in the timing of them. But you can hope in the promises of God. You can hope that a day is going to come when God's going to rescue you. You can hope in the fact that God will vindicate you. You can hope in the promise that God is going to free you from your sin. You can hope in the promise that God will make the perfect provision at the perfect time. You can hope in the promise that at right, just the right moment, God is going to step in. You can hope in the promises of God. You just don't get to tell him at what point they show up. And just because delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, they stretch our faith, they do not weaken God's promise. And some of us, right, some of us, if we're just honest with ourselves, we haven't seen God move or work or act in the time or in the place or in the way that we thought that he would. And so we begin to do this we begin to put God at arm's length. And more specifically, we begin to put the hope in the promises of God at arm's length. Because the reality, see what what, what really begins to happen is it's like, man, God, you didn't show up. You you didn't come through, right? Issues and and, and we're, we're heartbroken or there's distrust or it didn't happen. And so now I question the legitimacy of it. And some of you here this morning, what you need to be reminded of is that you can hope in the promises of God. So now let me just pose it to you as a question. Will you, not your spouse, not the person sitting next to you, will you choose to hope in the promises of God? There's hope in God's promises. 
find it fascinating. None of these people, with the exception of Joseph and maybe his father, lived to actually see the fulfillment of God's promise. And yet they were all a part of it. God, help us that we would live in that same manner and hold to the promises in that same way. God's rescue offers hope throughout all generations. There's hope in God's promises. But then you've got to also understand this too. What we see with respect to this genealogy is this truth right here. Uh, there's hope in our brokenness. You might struggle to believe that. You might categorically reject that. But it's true. There's hope even in the midst of our brokenness. Right? And sometimes our ability to hope is diminished or destroyed because of the brokenness that we experience. And those difficulties or those hardships or those things that happen and we thought God was going to do this, but in actuality, he does something different and we begin to question it. And so now I just, I'm just not going to hope. I'm not going to give myself up to that anymore. And yet there's hope in our brokenness. I mean, look at this list. Maybe some of you look at this list, you're like, I don't know any of the names on here outside of maybe two or three. Others of you might look at the list and you might know in great detail about the people on this list. Let me sum it up for you. This is a list of very messed up, broken people. I, I mean, almost everyone on this list has major issues. And if you took Jesus off the list, then we could definitively state everyone on the list has major issues. E- even the, the, the prominent names, the ones that were like, well, you know, that guy, that guy was pretty good. Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham for a minute. Right, the guy who the promise comes from, the father of the nations, is the same guy but that not once but twice going into different lands. Apparently his wife was pretty good looking. And uh, so he was kind of fearful of what would happen if the king found out that they were married. And so to spare his life, he's like, let's just say we're brother and sister to make sure that everything goes okay for me. Dude's a coward. That's the father of many nations. He's a coward. A David. <laughs> I'm like, where do you start with that guy? I mean, his family's a train wreck. This is the guy who committed adultery and then had the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with murdered to cover it up. Yet this is the guy through whom the promise comes to. Other names on this list uh, essentially highlight a number of kings, a few who were decent guys, uh, somewhat righteous, and still made some pretty massive mistakes. And and they're sprinkled in amidst the majority of guys on this list who are wicked and godless kings who uh, rejected and rebelled uh, all that God had for them. In fact, some of these guys are, are the same individuals who are offering their children to pagan gods, literally sacrificing their children to pagan gods. Part of the lineage of Jesus. And then you've got these women on this list. There are four women that are, well, three by name and a fourth that's mentioned, but not by name. And it's, what's fascinating about this is usually in Jewish uh, genealogies, it it wasn't common to include women. Um, And if you did include women, I'm guessing these are the four you wouldn't typically include. Okay. You've got Tamar. If you want to read about Tamar, you can go to Genesis 38. In short, here's what happens. She pretends to be a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law to carry on her family name. Not exactly a winner. Okay. Then you've got Rahab. She didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She just was a prostitute. You've got Ruth. Now, Ruth is probably the most credible um, of all these women. The problem with Ruth is just like Tamar and Rahab. She's not even Jewish. She's a Gentile. 
Three of these women aren't even Jewish women. And then you get to Bathsheba. They don't even mention Bathsheba by name in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's evoking in our mind um, the, the, the account of David's adultery and murder. This is not a winning lineup. Okay? These are very messed up, very broken people. And it's the line that Jesus comes from. Now, as a side note, let me just make mention of this briefly. I don't want to get lost on this, but as a side note, uh, one of the things you hear a lot today uh, that, that where people want to question the validity of the scriptures is they, well, it's been revised and people have tampered with it and they've messed with it. And, and what was originally written isn't what we have today. If you're going to revise some things, don't you think we'd want to clean up all of the super messed up people in the line of Jesus? Wouldn't we want to maybe remove some of those names and, 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 and out those off to the side so as to make him look a little bit better? Either it hasn't been revised or the people who revised it are total morons because they missed some pretty substantial things here. Of course, I don't think it's been revised. We see the reality of what's happening here. There's hope in our brokenness. That's what this list is telling us in spades. This list, these people, this brokenness, all the issues and all these lives and all the things that's happening here, this is what makes the gospel so glorious. Is that it speaks right to the brokenness and the failure within each and every one of us. And the hope that we have in Christmas isn't that we're broken. It's a hope in a God who can and will fix and address that. That we, we, we have a God who is going to physically right all of the physical um, effects of the fall. We have a God who is going to emotionally and mentally right all the effects of the fall. And all of those things ultimately point us to the reality that we have a God who is going to right all of the spiritual ailments and issues that we have with respect to the fall. There's hope in our brokenness. You might go, okay, I get it in a list, put it in between the lines of my life. Okay, let me try. So last Sunday at about this time, um, I began to get a migraine. And I'd never had a migraine until we moved to New Mexico, and now I get them uh, fairly periodically. There's no causation. I can't correlate. I can't tell you why. I just know that from time to time, uh, I get a migraine. Um, and if you've had a migraine, those, they're just pretty miserable. And if you've got to stand up in front of people and talk about things, uh, that's, that's no fun either. Okay? And um, so on Monday... Uh, I'm at home, didn't come into the office, sitting in my bedroom, and it's dark, and I'm just kind of thinking through some of these things, and it's like, what, what is the deal with this? Why? And, and of course, I'll tell people, and they, people always want to be helpful, and they're like, well, you know, maybe it's the elevation. And I'm like, I lived in Flagstaff for 30 years. That's 7,000 feet. That's like living at sea level. Um, well, you know, maybe it's because it's dry. I lived in Arizona. Like, it, it's not any wetter, you know, any kind of different things. And he, I'll just tell you, here, here's what I'm convinced. Here's what I'm convinced of this week. I'm convinced that from time to time for the rest of my life, I'm going to get a migraine. And here's why. I think it's a means of God's goodness and his kindness and his grace. And you're going, what? Let me finish. I think it's a means of his goodness and his kindness and his grace because when it happens, what it forces me to do 
is confront my brokenness, confront my inadequacy, confront my insufficiency, realize the fact that I am a broken, fallen sinner who desperately needs a Savior, and it pushes me right back to Jesus. And so if that's the case, then give it to me every single day if need be. Because, loved one, what is better? Answer this question in your heart of hearts. What is better than something that will push you right back to your Savior? Now, I don't think um, most, if not all of us, want a migraine or whatever our particular thing is on a regular basis. But see, most of us don't look at our brokenness in a biblical manner. We want to be healed from it. We want to be freed from it. I just want the pain to go away. I want to be comfortable. I want whatever. When in reality, what Jesus is saying, what you need, Mike, what you need is to, is to recognize and realize that you need me. So here you go. And so I'm sitting there in my bed Monday at first. I'm kind of bugging like, this is stupid. Why won't this stop? And, and, and within 20 minutes, I'm like, man, thank you. Yeah, I want the pain to go away. But it's a means of God's kindness and his goodness and his grace that he would put something in my life to push me towards him. Here's my question for you. What's your brokenness? What's the thing that is breaking you in your life? Here's the follow-up to that. Can you see how God is using that to push you back to himself? Or are you fighting that and allowing that to drive you from him? See, God's rescue offers hope throughout all generations. Part of his hope is rooted in the brokenness of humanity. The hope that one day Jesus is going to make it, make it right. But until then, our brokenness moves and pushes us back to the Savior. God's rescue offers hope throughout all generations. Here's the second thing. Look at verses 18 through 23. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. And here, Matthew begins to chronicle the actual, um, um, not even the birth account, but, but leading up to the birth of Jesus. And, but before I go any further and begin to read any of these verses, let me just maybe put this question in front of us. When's the last time? When's the last time that you've just been utterly blown away by your salvation? I mean, where you're just overwhelmed at the work of God, where you find yourself going, wow, God did that. When's the last time that you've been floored by that? Maybe it's been days, maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's been months. Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been decades since the last time that you found yourself overwhelmed by what God has done for you. This idea of God's rescue is the hope of salvation. I'm going to read some things here in a moment. And probably most, if not all of us, will be like, yeah, I heard that. I know that. I'm aware of that. And, and let me just say this here before we go any further. I think sometimes because we're so familiar with the story, we become inoculated to the power and just how incredible what's unfolding here actually is. Here's what I'm talking about. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Like, okay, he's going to tell us about the birth of Jesus. You ever thought about the fact that God himself is going to be incarnate? That God himself is going to take on flesh? That God's going to come and be present with us? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Does anyone else find it striking that Matthew takes the entirety of half a verse to explain the Immaculate Conception? 
I, he doesn't qualify it. He's not like, oh, here, let me just explain a few other things. I know there's going to be a tricky doctrine for y'all down the road, and it's going to be kind of weird. Let me just, no. He's like, here's what God did. Moving on. Joseph was kind of freaked out. He didn't know. He just moves right on. He's not baffled one bit by it. Now, lest you think that our generation, only the last couple generations, are ones that struggle with this idea of the virgin birth. We know that people in Jesus' day struggled with the virgin birth. His dad struggled with the virgin birth. It's what it says in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he doesn't buy it. That's why. I mean, this would be another point where you'd want some revisionist history to come in and kind of fill this up a little bit. Like, here's why, what God's really doing, and here's what we should think and shouldn't think. I think what part of what's going on here, right, the supernatural sometimes can seem so far-fetched to us because God is so limited in our mind. I think that's part of what we learned from Matthew here. I mean, it doesn't bat an eye. Uh, yeah, so she hasn't had sex with you. She's had sex with no one else, but she's pregnant. Okay, so let me tell you about her husband. And he's just... God did it. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. That's not how it works. I know how this works. That's not how it works. But Matthew's not concerned with that, is he? Let me just say one other thing with respect to the virgin birth that I think is important. Um, It's shocking. Honestly, it's shocking to me how uh, even pastors will will be very, very casual about uh, this doctrine. And they'll make statements of like, well, you know, it's it's not really as big of a deal. And um, it's a huge deal, by the way. Theologically, the implications could not be greater. But we'll we'll, want to undermine the virgin birth because it's this supernatural thing. But we'll get to the end of the same gospel and go, hey, that guy who just raised himself from the dead, like that's the greatest thing that's ever happened. You can't be inconsistent. God is either supernatural across the board or he's not. But you got to understand the inconsistency. If you want to undermine this, you got to undermine everything else that comes with it. And so notice, God's rescue is the hope of salvation. Why? Why Why mention this? Why press this? Why talk about some of these things? And and, and why even cause us to rethink this again? Uh, Here's why. I don't want us to ever forget how mind-boggling and life-altering the gospel actually is. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors were reminding their audience of just how great and glorious the gospel actually was. Why would they do that? Because they understood that our tendency as people is to drift away from it. We let other things distract us. We, we become callous to it. Um, we, we just simply, we simply slide away from it or fade away from it. And so here's what happens. Over time, the gospel becomes stale to us. My prayer all week has been that if anything would happen this morning is that we would be reminded again of the greatness of the gospel. That we would be reminded again of the greatness of what God has done on our behalf. Do you remember when you first believed? Think back to that moment. Do you remember when you first believed, when you first got saved? There was this awe and this excitement and this passion and this fire. Like, I can't believe this. And I got to tell people, and this is amazing. And what about today? What is it like inside of you? Today, what, what, what is it that goes on inside of you now? 
See, my fear, and I firmly believe this, is that one of the greatest dangers in Bible-believing churches today, you ready for this? Here's what I think it is. It's boredom. We're bored. The gospel's boring to us. We're, we're, we're inoculated to it. We're, we're, we're sterilized. It, it, it doesn't capture us in the way that, that, that it once did. There's no fire. There's no passion. It's, it doesn't grip me. It doesn't grab me. It's like, well, yeah, I know God came. Jesus came. He's born. He dies. That's cool. We're saved. Heaven, yeah, looking forward to that. Gag to that. We're bored with the greatest news ever. So I'm gravely, gravely concerned that there are people sitting in this room right now and your hearts are hard and they are cold to the gospel. I'm not saying that you're not a believer. I'm not saying that you're not a follower. I'm saying that your heart is hard and it is cold towards the gospel. So I would just say in this moment, would we be exhorted that as we move through the rest of this text, as we think through these things, that what God would do is he would, within all of us, that he would stir anew and afresh the fullness of the gospel in our lives. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. Uh, This is everything for us. It's everything for us. And it's a pretty wild story to boot. Notice, can we just appreciate the tension that Mary and Joseph find themselves in for a moment. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. You're betrothed to a guy, which is, which is more formal than our understanding of engagement. It's essentially like being married without consummating the marriage. You're legally married. You're pregnant. You know it's not his. He knows it's not his. You know the divine origins of the child inside of you, but you have no way of proving it, and you understand that societally you're going to be labeled a whore. Can you appreciate the tension this girl finds herself in? And how about Joseph? Here's this woman that you love, that you're betrothed to. You know that baby's not yours. She's, she's like adamant, like, I, man, I have been faithful it's God's, and so you're like, I love her. I don't know if she's been cheating on me or not. Maybe she's a little bit crazy, too. And so what do you do? And then, like, what does their conversation with, with their parents look like? Imagine going to mom and dad, unpacking that one. Uh, hey, dad. So, you know, Mary and I have been talking. She's pregnant. What? No, no, it's not mine. All right? and, and, like, where do you go with that? Can you appreciate the tension that these guys find themselves in? And so Mary, or, or Joseph, I don't think we understand the weight of verse 19. Her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I mean, how many agonizing hours and how many tears and how many back and forths did he go through to arrive at that point? Just in anguish over all that's happened. So he's considering these things, right? An angel of the Lord uh, appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph... Son of David. Okay, stop for a minute. Joseph, son of David. One of the things that's fascinating about what happened, we could talk about those, those four words for the entirety of a sermon. We won't, but we could. See, the angel is connecting the legal connection between Jesus and David through Joseph. So Jesus' legal claim to the line of David comes through a man, check this out, who will adopt him. 
Jesus is adopted. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. That's kind of a wild thought. Let me press that a little bit further. Not only is Jesus adopted, but Jesus' father, Joseph, not his heavenly father, but his earthly father, Joseph, will become an example of the gospel to the gospel himself. Joseph will do for Jesus what God the Father will do for all of his children. He will take a child that is not his child and he will make it his child. Isn't that fascinating? That Jesus himself allows uh, himself to be adopted in that manner. That, That just blows my mind. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing the angel does is like, okay, let me clear this up. She ain't fooling around. That really is from God. Okay, now that we've got that settled, here you go. Verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. Two things that we see here, starting in verse 21. Here's the first. Jesus will save us from sin. Jesus will save us from sin. Now the word Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua, literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. How's he going to do it? On the cross. He's going to go to the cross. So let me, let me just say it this way. We, we can't sterilize, we can't sanitize the very bloody reality of Christmas. You tracking with me? Um, we, 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 th- there's only one way that he's going to save his people. It's through the cross. And what Matthew knows from the very beginning of his book, what Matthew knows is he's going to move his reader to the pinnacle of human history, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's already beginning to point his readers to Calvary, but he has to start at the beginning. But from the very beginning, he's going to save them from their sins. How is he going to do it? Well, because Jesus is going to bleed and die for his people. And I think sometimes, sometimes when we get to Christmas, we, we want to divide Christmas and Easter. You know what I'm saying? Because here's, here's the deal. I mean, we, we love Easter because it, it's glorious because Jesus wins and he's victorious and he conquers sin and death and all that stuff. But here's the other side of Easter. Easter is gory and it is graphic and it is bloody and it is gruesome. And I'm not just talking about the physical piece. There, there, there's a real darkness, a real depravity that we celebrate at Easter. But when we come to Christmas, we have this cute little baby We've got pretty lights. We've got boxes of decorations that we want to set up around our house. And so, so like Chris, Christmas is an interior decorator's dream, right? I mean, it's like, oh, it's so pretty and it's cute and we love it. And, and so we, we tend to sometimes separate these two things. You can't divorce Christmas from Easter. And so I'm sorry if I just bloodied up your Christmas, but the scriptures do that for us. He will save his people from their sins. We know how he's going to do that. He's going to do that through the cross. The only reason that Christmas exists is because of God's intent for Easter. Think of it this way. If Mary and Joseph were to send out a Christmas card... I mean, can you see him? Like maybe even there in the manger and there's Joseph and Mary and she's holding right little sweet baby Jesus in her arms. What else do you think is going to show up there? Maybe you might have the manger. Maybe you've got some farm animals. I think somewhere in the picture you got the cross. 
an instrument of death. So next time, when you get, like in the, in the next week or two, when you get uh, Christmas cards from folks, or next year in the fall, when you're like, hey, time to go do pictures for Christmas cards, I'm guessing what, what neither of you will say to your spouse or your children is like, hey, time to go get pictures. Could you grab the electric chair? Um, could you get the guillotine? Could you get the needles? Because we want to make sure that's like front and center in the card. Because we don't think about death when it comes to Christmas. And yet that's exactly what's going on. He will save their people from their sins. The reality of the death, the gory graphic nature of, of what's happening here. See, what Matthew is, is moving the people towards is he, he, he's going to save their people from their sins. He's moving them to the cross because this is where God will deal with our sin. This is where God is, is going to remedy our situation. Unless you think I'm just being kind of sordid or gory or graphic, the reality is, is that the, the very bloody nature of this is, is rooted in the Old Testament. Go back to the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Two, two lambs that would be sacrificed. One, uh, the priest would take into the Holy of Holies and slit its throat. Blood everywhere. Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It's, it's, it's gory and it's graphic because our sin is gory and graphic. And this is God dealing with it. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. He will save his people from their sin. I think it's important for us to understand the depths at which God has gone to to actually save us from our sin. Notice this secondly, verse 22 and 23. The means or the purpose of God's rescue is that he's going to save us from our sin. Notice how he's going to do it. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's how God's going to do it. He's going to be with us. God's going to be present. You recognize this is what separates Christianity from all other religions throughout the world. It's that God comes to his people. No other God goes to his people. He expects the people to come to him or to them or whatever. But, but in, 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 with, with Christ, he comes to his people. It's one thing to send a messenger. It's one thing to send a prophet. It's an entirely different thing to send yourself. Think about all that God left. Think about all he left for a moment. Perfect harmony with the Trinity. Incessant worship. Absent of, of any sin or unrighteousness whatsoever. And, and comes to, to this, which is really the antithesis of all of that. It's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. Talking about Christ and the incarnation, he says, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he said this, but made himself nothing. The second member of the Trinity made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point or the goal, the purpose was salvation. The mode or the means or the way in which he accomplished it is that God was with us. He did not send someone else, God, 
became himself. And in that same fashion that God chose to be physically present at that moment in history, I would suggest to you that God is equally present in your life today. He's not distant. He's not disengaged. Um, He's not uninterested, but he is present and interested. Do you know that? Do you long for that? Do you believe that? Do you walk in that way? Do you know that God is, is present in your life? As Philippians 4 tells us, The Lord is at hand. God's rescue is the hope of salvation. God's going to rescue. He's going to save his people by going to the cross. And he's going to do so by being present with us. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is Joseph's response. And by way of application should be our response. At least in principle. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, first of all, let's, let's understand a couple of things. Here's the final point. Let me give you that first of all. Respond in obedience to God's word. What do we do with this? We respond in obedience to God's word. We do what God tells us to do. Now, with respect to the angel... There's not some angel watching this unfold like, ooh, hey, this is going to fall apart and we kind of need Joseph to be a part of this. That's the whole line of David thing. I'm going to just intervene and help him out and push him along towards the right answer here. I can promise you there is zero autonomy amongst the angels in heaven. This is a word from God. He's like, you, here, come here. Go tell him this. That's what's happening. This is God speaking to Joseph. It's a word, it's a direct command to him. And notice what Joseph does. He does exactly what he's told to do. Verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And then Matthew tells us specifically some of the things he did. He took his wife. That was one of the things he told him to do. Verse 25, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. That was beyond what the angel said. So we're saying that they did not have a sexual relationship until after Jesus was born. Now, we know that they eventually uh, consummated their marriage as uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. But we'll come back to that here in a moment. I think there's something there with respect to Joseph. And then finally, he called his name Jesus, also something the angel told him to do. Respond in obedience to God's word. Not only was Joseph obedient, um, he left no doubt about his obedience. Not only did he do what he was told to do, he went above and beyond what he was told to do. I think sometimes, right, sometimes as Christians, when we think about obedience, we treat it like a minimum requirement. What's the least amount possible that I have to do to make sure that I'm okay? How little can I put in that makes it sufficient or okay for what I've done? What's the bare essential of what I got to do? Far too often for far too many of us, that's what it is when it comes to obedience. Just going to do the bare minimum on this. And yet when we look at Joseph, that's that's completely contrary to what we see happening here. See, when it comes to obedience, what is the standard or the goal in your life? Is it to just get by or is it to give your very best to a God who gave his very best? What is it? How do we respond to God's command? Joseph was obedient. One of the things we use with our kids, uh, stole this from 
I didn't steal it. I'm using or borrowing it from Ted Tripp. And Ted Tripp wrote a great book many, many years ago called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And in fact, um, uh, in the spring, we're going to do a workshop on parenting from 9 to 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And so that's kind of a preview on that. And we're going to use that material for that. And it's going to be really good because that material is really good. But Ted Tripp talks about obedience. And he says obedience to authority. He, He gives kind of three qualities to it. Obedience does not challenge what is asked of them, does not delay in responding to it, and does not give excuse for why it is not done. And so we love using that with our kids. There's no delay. There's no challenge. There's no excuse. Obedience to authority is just simply you do what is told of you. Okay, now let me just push this down the road to you and your relationship with the Lord. When it comes to obedience... When it comes to what God is telling you, what God has commanded of you, what God has asked of you, is there challenge on your part? If so, you're not obedient. When it comes to obedience between yourself and what God has told you, is there delay on your part? If so, you're not obedient. When it comes to what God has told you and what God commands of you, if there, is there excuse on your part? If so, you're not obedient. Obedience is without challenge, without delay, and without excuse. What Joseph demonstrates for us is that we would respond in obedience to God's word. God's promise of rescue gives us great hope in our lives. I hope above all things that what we see and we think of here and we think of the Gospels, we think of just how great and glorious and profound Christ's work on our behalf is. But loved ones, let us hope first in God. Let us hope secondly in his promises and then let us respond in obedience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that you came. Uh, It would have been so easy uh, for you to just say, forget it. I don't want to. I'll pass. And yet your great love for us, your kindness for us has caused you to respond quite differently. And so, God, we thank you. I thank you that you are present with your people, that you are with us. God, we thank you that you save us. And we long for the day when the fullness of that is the reality that we live in. But until that day, God, would you help us to hope in you? God, for some of us, for some of the people in this room right now, that just hasn't been their life. They've they've given up on hope. They're done being hurt. They don't want to do it anymore. And God, I pray that by the power of your spirit this morning that each and every one of us would have a legitimate hope in the redemptive work of our Savior. God, for some of us to be reminded of it, for others of us, just a radical change in our life. But that we would see the rescue, we would see the work, and that we would hope again in all that you've done for us. Would you make that true? We pray this in your name. Amen.